Amen. Thank you so much, Luke, and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song this morning. We want to dive deeper into the glory of the cross. We want to know the glory of the cross. We want to love our Savior who died for us. And the only way that we can do that is if we understand our sinfulness, our sinful condition, and the truthfulness, the reality, and the miracle of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. Every beginning of the new year, we always take the first Sunday of the new year to reflect, to recalibrate, to refocus our thinking and our affections. And since we're taking the whole month of January to look at a theology of change, how we change, since we have uh, the beginning of February to look forward to with new people, uh, new members um, being welcomed in, uh, new believers being baptized, we have so many things that are miraculous gifts of God that he is doing in our church family. I wanted us to just refocus this morning on how we follow Jesus and why he is worthy of our affections. And I want to do that by looking at Psalm 32. So if you have your copy of God's word, Psalm 32 is where we are going to be this morning. This is Augustine's favorite psalm. He wrote it above his bed so he could lay down and he could see it. He could look at it. He could meditate on it. And he said these words, quote, The beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. He says, if I were to ask you why you have believed in Christ, why you have become Christians, every man will answer truly for the sake of happiness. We find our joy in Christ, our satisfaction in Christ, our happiness in him. But the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a sinner. If you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, you know the story of his life, you know uh, his biography, you know aspects of what his life looked like before he came to Christ. He was a thief, he would steal things, he was involved in sexual immorality, he was involved in a bunch of sin. And then his eyes were open to the gospel. You remember the story that he heard people reading from the Bible and him hearing those words gripped his heart and saved him. But he wanted to be able to come to the end of his life and stare at the forgiveness that he knew that he had in Christ and glory in it. He didn't want to forget it. And it'd be easy to forget it in so many different ways, shapes, and forms. And he didn't want to forget any of the, the blessings of forgiveness that we have in Christ. David doesn't want us to forget the forgiveness we have in Jesus either. That's why he wrote Psalm 32. He wants us to know the reality of our forgiveness that we have in God. That's why he says at the very beginning, uh, the superscription, a psalm of David, a maskil. Maskil, that's a weird, funny word. We don't know what that is. It's a weird looking word because it's a Hebrew word. You actually know a Hebrew word. Maskil is a Hebrew word. It's transliterated here, meaning we just take the sounds in the Hebrew word and we uh, take the sounds and phonetically spell them out in English. We don't translate it because we don't know exactly what it means. We do that with transliterated words in the Bible. We either don't translate them into English, we transliterate them, either because we know exactly what they mean, like hallelujah, that's a Hebrew word, you know exactly what that means. That means praise the Lord, praise Yahweh. And so it's beautiful and we leave it there because it's just a beautiful word, it's, we know what it means. But we also transliterate words because we don't know what they mean. 
We have an idea, but we don't know exactly what they mean. And so here, masculine, we don't know exactly what it means, but the closest, nearest word in the family of words, in the cognate of words, the closest word is in verse 8, and it's the word instruct. So a masculine is a song that is meant to instruct. That's the closest idea that we can come to. A masculine is a psalm that is meant, it's a song that's meant to teach. In fact, this is a sermon through song. The beginning of this sermon, verses 1 through 5, are the introduction. It's David's introduction. And then the main body of the sermon is verses 6 through the end of the chapter. This is a sermon from David in song form meant to instruct us. Historically, this was written after Psalm 51. The book of Psalms is not written chronologically. Psalm 32 comes after Psalm 51 uh, in historical chronology. Psalm 51, you remember, is the psalm that David wrote after he'd been confronted by Nathan over his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he writes Psalm 51, a contrite heart, a penitent man, a broken man. Psalm 32 comes after Psalm 51, where he is highlighting the forgiveness that he has in God. And in this psalm, he will give us four very practical ways to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness on a daily basis. Let's make 2024 a year where we live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness. So let's read this together, and then we will ask God's blessing on our time. Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a masculine. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of the summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. These are the words of our gracious, holy, and forgiving God. Let's pray together and ask his blessing on our time. Father, we do come before you and we, after reading this psalm, we know that we fall short 
of rejoicing and being glad in the forgiveness that we have in you. It's a command at the end of this psalm. And one of the reasons why we struggle with that is because we struggle to remember. We don't want to look at our sinfulness. We don't like remembering that. And because of that, we can't fully enjoy forgiveness. So Father, I pray that you would guide our time this morning, that you would direct our affections to Christ, that you would enable us to see our sinfulness for what it is, that we would not make light of it, we would not excuse it, we would not justify it, but we would call it what it is. We would say exactly what you say about it. And then we'd run to the cross. That we would run to forgiveness, we'd run to Jesus, and that we would know without a shadow of doubt that we are fully justified. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you would encourage the saints here in this room. Encourage them this morning to rejoice and be glad in forgiveness. And Father, if there are any here that do not know that forgiveness, I pray that they would receive by running to Jesus today. Full pardon, full forgiveness, and no condemnation because The future wrath that is theirs because of their sin has been poured out on Christ. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray it in your name. Amen. There are four different disciplines that David would give us this morning. Four practical things that we can do. Four practical ways that we can live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness. Number one, if we want to live in the joy of the Lord's forgiveness, number one, we must call sin what the Savior says it is. Call sin what the Savior says it is. This is verses one through two. David begins by saying, how blessed is this man? How blessed, that's the Hebrew word, asher, but it's in the word, it's in the plural, so it's eshrei. Oh, the blessednesses. This is the greatest joy that you could possibly have as a human here on earth, to live life in a way that it is meant to be lived and to enjoy it in its fullest, most satisfying sense. This is that man. And so we ask, who is this man? How can we be blessed this way? He says, it's one whose transgression is forgiven, sin is covered, the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's four lines, there's two couplets, it's Hebrew parallelism on display. This is the poetic way that Hebrew parallelism works. You take two lines and you can either use them synonymously saying the same thing or you can use them to say the opposite thing. It's a beautiful expression. And what David is saying is he's giving us three main words to describe what offending a holy God looks like. And he's not sugarcoating it. He's calling sin what it is. He says three words, transgression, sin, and iniquity. These are helpful words to understand the severity of sin. To transgress is to go beyond the law of God. It's to move outside the parameter that God has set up, to go beyond. It's the idea of trespassing. It's going beyond what God has said. He said, do not go past this line, and to transgress is to do what God says not to do. He also says, your sin Sin is missing the mark. It's that Greek word, hamartia, in Romans 3.23. It's the word that is an archery term. It's to shoot an arrow at a target, but to completely miss the mark. 
So transgressing is to go beyond, to do something that God has said not to do. Sin is not doing what God has said to do. It's not making perfection. It's not getting to holiness. It's falling short. And iniquity, the third word. The closest word to iniquity is a word that means to pervert or to twist. Maybe we could say it this way. It's to do something that God requires, but just not in the way God requires it. Not doing what God says the way that he says to do it. So transgressing is to to do something God says not to do. Sin is not doing what God says to do. And uh, iniquity is to pervert, to turn, to twist, to change, to take what God has said and do it in a different way. It's like when my parents would tell me, can you clean your room? Pick up all the clothes off of your floor, um, put them in the laundry basket, clean your room. I would take the clothes and I would just take the edge of my bed, the, um, the blanket off the edge of my bed. I'd pick it up and I'd just shove all the clothes underneath and put it over and room is cleaned. New, new record, three seconds, clean room, good to go. I, I, I did what my parents said, the, the room is clean. There's no clothes on the ground, but did I do it the way they really want it to be? No, that's iniquity. How often do we make light of sin because we think it's not really that bad? That's why David uses all of these words. Sin is transgressing. It's going beyond. It's doing what God says we shouldn't do. It's also failing to do what God says we should do. And then it's also twisting what God says. Maybe we do something that God says, but with the wrong motives. That's still sin. And deceit, end of verse 2. That's just kind of lying about all of it, covering all of it up. Not being honest about what sin is. If you want to rejoice in the Lord's forgiveness, you have to start by acknowledging what sin truly is. You have to call it what it is. And we don't like doing that. We don't like to speak frankly about sin, honestly about sin. There's a story about a man who asked his pastor one day not to speak so frankly about sin. He said, I don't really like how stark it is, how just kind of frank of a topic and sober of a topic. Just use milder terms. Be a little softer. The preacher went home and grabbed a bottle of rat poison out of his cabinet. And the little label on the front had the the skull and the crossbones, you know, death, don't swallow this. And he said, if I were to tape over this bottle of poison and I put essence of peppermint over it, have I made this bottle of poison any less dangerous? The answer is no. In fact, I've made it more dangerous because now you don't think that this is deadly. If I have the skull and the crossbones, it's obvious, don't drink this, don't eat this, this is bad for you. But if I put something over to cover it, Now I've made it actually more dangerous because you don't think of the danger inherent to it. We must understand what our sin truly is. Sin is a foul stench in the nostrils of God Almighty. We, as sinners, are repugnant and offensive to God. Alexander McLaren says, you have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness of sin until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. And R.C. Sproul used to say, sin is cosmic treason. It's wishing that we could go into heaven, knock down heaven's door, kill God, and be God. That's what sin is. Every time we sin. That's the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, they're trying to get into heaven. Let's get into heaven. Let's go overthrow God. Let's be God. 
Every time we sin, we are saying, God, your rules stink. I would do better. And so we need to call it what it is. We need to confess. The word confession literally means to say the same as. So to confess is to take God's word about sin and say, yes, my sin is what you say it is. I'm saying the exact same thing. I'm calling my sin what God calls it. And confession is not merely admitting that sin is real, but also rejecting sin as being repulsive. And the man who does that, verse 2, the Lord will not impute iniquity to you. He will not hold it against you. Verse 1, it will be forgiven. Verse 1, it will be covered. But you have to start by calling it sin what it is. Number two, if you want to live in the joy of forgiveness, not only do you have to call sin what God calls it, number two, you need to grant guilt to do its gracious job. You need to grant guilt to do its gracious job. This is verses three and four. God has a way to make us feel how bad sin actually is. And that's called guilt. You can see in verse 3, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Why? Why was his body wasting away? Why was, as he's going to say later, his vitality being drained? It's because day and night, verse 4, your hand was heavy on me. So as he holds on to his sin, as he doesn't acknowledge it, he doesn't call it what God calls it, God brings guilt into his life that affects how he feels. It affects how he lives, his energy. You see this in other places in the Bible. 2 Samuel, you could just write these down. 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. David has a son, he has many sons, but he has one son named Amnon. And he has a sister, Amnon's sister, Tamar. Amnon thinks that Tamar is gorgeous and wants to sleep with her. It's wrong. And the Bible says that as he desires her and wants to sleep with her, he makes himself sick. He physically gets sick because of his lust, discontentment, because of his jealousy and envy over his sister. He lusts, spiritual issue, and that turns into a physical issue. He becomes sick. Another passage you could go to is Matthew 18. You remember when the king has forgiven, Jesus is telling the parable, the king has forgiven the man so much he goes out and he does not forgive the other man his debts. The king hears of it. He brings that guy back and he throws him into prison to be tortured until he would understand what was going on, until he would allow this man to be forgiven, until he would stop this and repay the debts, he was tortured. Most theologians would say that that man is a believer, but he's under discipline, and that discipline shows itself in many different forms, and one of the forms that it can show itself is physically. Now, not all physical problems that we have are because of sin. Please hear me clearly. John 9 the man born blind, the disciples say, why is this man blind? Is it his sin, his parents' sin? What did he do? And Jesus says, he didn't do anything. His parents didn't do anything. This is for the glory of God. So not all physical issues stem from a spiritual problem. Job is a classic example, right? If we go around thinking you have a physical problem, well, it must be because you sinned, then we become Job's awful, terrible friends. So don't do that. But... 
there are moments when physical issues are stemming from spiritual problems. And David says his physical issues, his vitality being drained, his body wasting away, it's because he did not acknowledge his sin. He didn't confess his sin. And not every form of guilt is because of sin. I want to say that clearly as well. You can feel guilty over things you shouldn't feel guilty for, and you might not feel guilty about things that you should. Maybe your conscience is misinformed, uninformed. Maybe you're ignorant about certain things, so you can feel guilt over things you shouldn't feel guilty for. But here, David knows absolutely that he has sinned, clearly identifying that God in his kindness is bringing guilt into his life. So in this setting, this is very clearly, David sinned, he didn't own it, and God gives a gracious gift to David called guilt. There is such a thing as good guilt. As Charlie Brown would say, good grief. There's such a thing as good grief. This is from God, verse four. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. I think in evangelicalism today, One of the common threads that's woven throughout almost every sermon or book is about how guilt is a bad thing and it's from the devil. I think there are times when it is. If you know you're forgiven, if you've gone to the cross, if you've repented and that burden's been taken away, the devil's there wanting to take that burden and give it right back to you. Feel guilty over this. Don't feel forgiven, feel guilty. That's absolutely from the devil. But this kind of guilt is not. This kind of guilt is from God. God is graciously giving David guilt. He's giving him a feeling of guilt so that David would understand, I need to turn. This is the warning. This is the warning light. We talk a lot about CBC, about my lack of knowledge of cars, right? When my engine light, my check engine light goes on, I don't know what's happening. I I don't know if you're like me. I kind of freak out when the engine light goes on. I, I think my car's about to blow up. And then my car doesn't blow up and I go, hmm, I guess everything's fine. And I just keep driving. Um, probably shouldn't do that. But check engine, the warning light goes on. If we try to duct tape over it, we try to say, I don't want to look at that. I don't want to see that as a problem. God's going to try and get our attention. He's going to scream at us through guilt. It's a gracious gift. Hebrews chapter 12 says the same thing. God loves his kids and so he will discipline them as a father disciplines his kids so this psalm is celebrating forgiveness based on the guilt that David experienced and then moved on the guilt led him to run to God so when you feel guilty about something you too can allow it to prompt you to do something about it this psalm is about letting guilt do its job he says at the end of verse 4 Selah. It's another transliterated word. It's another Hebrew word. So now you have two Hebrew words that you know. Masculine is a Hebrew word. Selah is a Hebrew word. Transliterated. Again, because we don't fully know exactly what it means. But the closest word, again, the cousin companion word to this word is a word for looking up. It's a word for stopping to look up. And in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this word is dia salmas. Dia means through, salmas means song. So in the middle of the song, through the song, our word for that in English would be interlude. So this is a musical interlude. This is something that's designed by David 
to stop you as you've been singing through this song. There's going to be a musical interlude where you stop singing and you reflect on what was just sung. And so what he's wanting us to do right now is reflect on two principles that we've already seen. Number one, do you call sin what it is? Do you take sin lightly? Do you feel lightly about sin? Do you feel about your sin something that God does not feel about it? And then secondly, I think he would be saying, he wants us to pause and ask, is there any guilt or shame that we have been feeling that we've been trying to throw away or shove away as quickly as we can, but we don't want to deal with it? Is there anything that you feel guilty about? Ask the question, am I feeling guilty because I haven't dealt with this, because I haven't brought this to the Lord? Maybe ask the question, is this right guilt? Is this guilt from a misinformed conscience? But he would ask us, how do you view sin? And how do you view your guilt? Then he'll move on to the next section, verse five. He's gonna give us what we should do. And this is number three. If we are to live in the joy of the, the Lord's forgiveness, number one, we call sin what the Savior calls it. Number two, we grant guilt to do its gracious job. It's a gift from the Lord to enable us to run to Jesus. Number three, we respond rapidly in repentance. Respond rapidly in repentance. Once we understand what sin is, once we feel guilty about it, we respond rapidly. This is really verses five through 10. Notice what he says in verse five. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Once he had felt that guilt, once he knew that God was trying to get his attention, he said, I acknowledge it to you. I confess it all to you. I come before you and I plead with you. I did what was wrong. I sinned, I transgressed, I have iniquity and I have deceit. God, please Forgive me. Look at his specific acknowledgement of his sin. He calls it, verse 5, sin, iniquity, and transgression. And then he brings up the guilt. You forgave the guilt of my sin. He calls it exactly what God calls it. That's what we need to do if we're going to be forgiven. And notice, once he calls it exactly what God calls it, end of verse 5, you forgave the guilt of my sin. I'm a word association guy when it comes to memorizing things. So when I was in seminar, seminary trying to memorize Hebrew words, this word, I'll never forget this word for forgive. It's the word NASA, which I just think of NASA. So I think of a rocket ship being propelled into outer space because the word NASA means to lift up. What does Jesus do with our burden of sin? When we come to him and we are weighed down, it's like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. We're weighed down by this burden of sin and we say, God, I have sinned. Would you forgive me? What does he do? He lifts up the burden. He takes it away. He removes it completely. I love in Pilgrim's Progress when that moment, that moment at the cross where Christian comes before the cross, he has that massive burden. I don't know if you've seen those illustrated versions of the Pilgrim's Progress. It seems like every illustrated version, that burden keeps getting bigger, right? When I read a book growing up, that burden was a little backpack that just kind of had a bump on it. And then I'm reading this one with my kids, and it's like over his face in this big, massive burden. And he goes before the cross, and what happens? The straps are cut instantly. The burden rolls away. He's given new clothing. He's given armor. He is a new creature, a new creation. 
And you remember, he goes out and almost instantaneously, he goes through a couple different areas, but then he goes and he meets Apollyon, that demon. Apollyon tells him, you have no right to walk this path to the celestial city. I know there's a burden of sin behind you. I know what you've done, and you have no right to call yourself a son of the king. Do you remember Christian's response? I love Christian's response. He tells Apollyon, number one, you actually don't know how much sin I've committed. I know my sin more than you do. You only know that burden back there. I know things I've done that you don't even know. I know my sinfulness more than you do. And then number two, he says, you're forgetting one thing, Apollyon. That king that I'm going to, you are forgetting how much he loves to forgive sin. He loves it. That's what God loves to do. He loves to lift the guilt of our sin. So often I think we have an image of God. When we come before him, we say, I've sinned. I I did what was wrong. I offended you. I've hurt the holiness of God. I've tarnished the holiness of God. I think we have an image in our mind where God is just arms crossed going again. And he goes, ugh, fine, I'll remove it. That's not our God. We come before him, we say, I have sinned. I have done what is wrong in your sight. I've offended you, a holy God. God, with a smile on his face, runs towards us, lifts that burden off and covers us in mercy. He loves to do that. That's why Jesus died, so that he could love to forgive anyone who comes to him. That's why David says at the end of verse five, Selah, we need another break. We need to stop and pause and realize this is our God. Notice David has done nothing. He just said, yes, I sinned. That's all he did. And God says, that's all I need. Let me take it all from you. There's no penance. There's no, uh, you have to work on these different things. You have to do these things to be saved. You have to do these things to be forgiven. No, admit your guilt and trust in me and I will do it all. Therefore, verse 6, now he's going to teach us. The therefore connects. So verses 1 through 5 are the introduction to his sermon. This is my life. This is what happened for me. And now let me teach you what you should do based off of what happened to me. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Since God is a forgiving God and deals with sin this way, then everyone who is godly should run to him and pray, confessing their sin in a time when he may be found. That means there is a time when God may not be found. We don't know exactly when that is. I know, I know one time exactly when that is, and that's when you die. When you die, there is no other chance to be forgiven. There is no other time for you to possibly be able to go to God and receive forgiveness. It is appointed unto man once to die and then judgment. But in this life, there is a time when God may not be found. You see this in Hebrews chapter 12 where Esau longs to be forgiven and he has this sense in his own heart of I have guilt and I don't like it, but he doesn't love God and so therefore God will not be found. So I don't know where you are in this process of guilt and sin and running to Jesus or not, but David would say, once you feel guilt, Once you know your sin, you're on the clock. The clock's ticking. Do this now. Do this today. Don't put it off. 
It does nothing but compound the problem if you wait to confess your sin and to repent. Turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. Just a a couple parallel passages to this. Isaiah 55 verse 6. Isaiah says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Turn to him, he will abundantly pardon, but seek him now, seek him while he's close. Go back to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. The Lord says, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The invitation is there. If you're willing and obedient, you have abundant pardon for you. But if you rebel, if you wait, there may be a time, there will be a time when God may not be found. So deal with your guilt now. Deal with your sin now. It's an urgent matter. And once you do, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Back in Psalm 32, David writes in verse 6, Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. So when the great waters, maybe it's trials of life, maybe it's suffering, or maybe it's actually the waters of God's wrath against sin. Whatever it is, there's some aspect where there are tangible blessings that come to those who confess their sin. And he says, verse 7, you are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. We run to him and we're safe in his sovereign control. We talk a lot about sovereignty, God's sovereignty at CBC. He is sovereign over all things. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. He knows and directs and ordains all things. We love that. We glory in that because the Bible glories in that. But it does us no good if God is sovereign, but he's not good. If God is sovereign, but he's not for us. But here we're told he is sovereign and he's for us. Run to him and he'll protect you. He'll preserve you. He's not working against you. He's working for you. He loves you. So turn to him in repentance. Sometimes repentance can feel weird or unnatural. I love the way the old Puritan Thomas Watson used to say, repentance is the vomit of the soul. When you're throwing up, that's not the natural way things should go. That's unnatural and it doesn't feel good and doesn't feel right. So too with the soul. Your soul is craving for sin. Your soul is desiring sin. Your soul is saying, I want this. And you're saying, no, I'm following God. And there's a regurgitation. There's a a vomiting of your soul and saying, no, I'm going to follow God. 
Verse 8. Verse 8 is so interesting. It's so precious. After verse 7, where David gives us another Selah, we are supposed to pause and see there is a time when God may not be found, so run now. But if you run now, you have a refuge. But then verse 8, something changes in the grammar. Verse 8 is a unique verse. Up until this point, it has all been second person plural verbs that David has been using. Second person plural is the you all, all of you. We don't really have that unless you're from Texas and it's just y'all. But here, it's you all, all of you, all at the same time. These commands are for all of you. Here in verse 8, it moves to second person singular, you personally, you individually, you singularly. And because of that, in verse 9, it's going to move back to second person plural. Because of verse 8 being so distinct, so different, so jarring in the original language. Most commentators would say that it's actually God saying, let me take the pen from David and write this personally. Not through David, but personally. And then he kind of gives the pen back to David in verse 9. I agree with that assessment, and my Bible actually agrees with that as well, because my Bible translation has my in verse 8 as a capital M. This is God doing the talking. So David has been saying, hey, listen to my life, look at my life, let me tell you what you should do. And then verse 8, God says, hey, can I speak personally? I will instruct you. You come to me in repentance, I will instruct you. I will teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I will be with you. I will be for you. I will direct you. I will guide you. You turn in repentance and I've got your back in everything. And he kind of gives the pen back to David as it were. Verse 9, David goes, so don't be as the horse or as the mule. Don't have to be drug along. Come by yourself. Come on your own volition. Don't have to have a a trapping, a, a bit and a bridle put on you or in you and pulled. No, come on your own. This example in verse nine, you can kind of think of it uh, like a barn, like a, a farm. You have a barn and a farmer is pleading with his animals, come into the barn. There's a storm coming and I don't want you to be affected. Come into the barn, come to safety. And the farmer's yelling. And David, he was a mule back in verses one through four. He's out there going, no, 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 no. I'm not going, I'm not moving, I'm staying right here. And he's out there and the farmer's yelling, come before it's too late. You're gonna be swept away in the flood, come. And our God is so gracious that he doesn't look at that mule and go, good riddance, and go into the barn. You deserve it, and go into the barn. No, he goes out and he puts that bridle, puts that bit and says, I'm dragging you, come with me. And that's why David says, don't wait until that moment. Don't wait until God has to come grab you. Come on your own, you know it. Come now, let guilt do its job and lead you to confession and forgiveness. Verse 10, many are the sorrows of the wicked, 
but he who trusts in the Lord. I love this. So this is Hebrew parallelism. This is a great example. You've got line A, line B. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And so the next line could be, if you were a boring poet like myself, if I were to write this verse, I would have said, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but few are the sorrows of the righteous. But David, in his Hebrew parallelism, what he's going to do is define for us what a righteous person looks like. He knows that you and I are already thinking when he says, but he's talking about righteous people. So he gets to define what does it mean to be a righteous person? Because he's going to contrast it with the wicked. So what is his definition for a righteous person in verse 10? But he who trusts in the Lord. It's not what you do. It's not your abilities, it's not your performance, it's not your good works. No, it's your trust in the Lord. It's his righteousness that becomes yours. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. So what's the opposite of that? It's someone who says, I need to trust in Yahweh. And instead of having sorrow surrounding you, loving kindness surrounds you. Loving kindness surrounds you. Loving kindness, one of my favorite Hebrew words. It's a word, uh, one of my favorite definitions for that word is, when the one from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. That's what God does. I have no right to expect anything from him. I have nothing that I could do to earn anything from him. And he gives me everything. So if we're going to live in light of God's forgiveness, number one, we need to call sin what the Savior says it is. Number two, we need to let guilt do its gracious job. Number three, we need to respond rapidly in, re in repentance. But the psalm doesn't end there. Verse 11, number four, after doing all those things, number four, glory in and be glad in grace. Glory in grace. Be glad in grace. This is a command. Verse 11. Be glad is a command. If you are not being glad, then you're disobeying God. This is a command for believers. Be glad in Yahweh. Rejoice in Yahweh, you righteous one. Shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Don't wallow in self-pity. Glory in forgiveness. Tim Keller used to say, joy is the marker of justified people. So let guilt do its job, lead you to Jesus. And then once Jesus has done the work to forgive you, to take your sin away, glory in forgiveness, glory in grace. To be forgiven by the God of the universe and to have sin be done away with for good is the greatest thing in the entire world. This is the greatest gift in the universe, that we can be reconciled with God, have a right relationship with him, not be his enemies any longer, but be his friends, not even just his friends, his sons and daughters. Oh, that we would cherish forgiveness more. That's what the psalmist is pleading with us to do. Cherish your forgiveness more. Be glad in the Lord because of your forgiveness. Shout for joy because of your forgiveness. I love the way John Piper says it. Until we fear sin and its consequences more keenly, we will not prize our pardon very highly. The degree to which we feel sweet gratitude for being forgiven strikes dread into our hearts. The horror of sin and the fearfulness of hell are the only backdrop that will let forgiveness shine for the infinite blessing that it really is. 
If you don't see the gigantic tidal wave of God's wrath rushing toward you, then you won't glory in the rescue that Jesus provides. God calls us to admit our sin, to confess it, to call it what it is, to let guilt do its job and lead us to Christ, and then to glory in forgiveness. I want to end in just two passages in Jeremiah. So turn to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. I love this passage. Verse 12, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and and say these truths. Say these words. Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. Now, If I'm a parent, I am a parent, and I'm in this moment telling my kids, you need to return. You need to stop doing what you're doing. You need to change. Typically, the because, the motivation is because you're in danger, because you've disobeyed, because you're not doing what's right. But notice what God gives as the motivation. Return. You're faithless, Israel. Return. And I will not look upon you in anger because I'm gracious. Return. Why? Repent. Why? There are a million reasons why we we should repent. Many of them we talked about. There is danger. There is wrath. There is hell. Absolutely. But his main motivation is I'm gracious. Run to me. This is why Paul will say it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. It's not the fear of the Lord that ultimately leads you. The fear of the Lord can begin you down that road. No, it's the kindness of God. It's the graciousness of God. I will not be angry forever, he says. Acknowledge your iniquity. You've transgressed against the Lord your God. You've scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. You've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. But return, return. I love how David gave us three words for sin, right? Transgression, sin, and iniquity. And then he followed those up with three words of what God was going to do. Cover, forgive, lift up, take it away, and not hold it against you. And those three better words than sin, transgression, and iniquity, those three better words are only possible because of three better words that would follow. Three words that Jesus would say at the cross. It is finished. It's paid in full. It's done. The only reason to preach about sin is to bring us to Jesus and make us love the forgiveness that we have at the foot of the cross. Christ died for us for our sin, in our place, for our benefit. He absorbed the judgment that should have fallen on us and we must cherish his forgiveness. Jared Wilson says, Christian, the one who knows you best, all your secrets, all your sins, all your cravings, all your failings, loves you most forever. That's the gospel. You're fully known and you're fully loved. How is this possible? One last passage, Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40, and this will lead us into our time of communion. Jeremiah chapter 32, verse 40. 
God makes a promise. It's called the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. I will make, verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. The only reason why that's good news is because we have no ability to put the good news in our hearts. We have no ability to put his fear in our hearts, fear of him in our hearts. If we had that ability, this covenant would be unnecessary, but we don't have that ability. So he has to give us that gracious gift of putting a fear of him in our hearts. And then he says this, I will rejoice over them to do them good. I will rejoice over them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he took that cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is what he's talking about. I am sealing for all those who would believe, I am sealing at the cross this promise. I'm buying it for them. I'm purchasing it for them at the cross so that I can put the fear of me in their hearts and they will repent. They'll turn, they'll trust, they'll love me. So as we prepare to partake of these elements, we're going to sing. I'm going to ask the men to distribute these as we sing, but I just, I want to ask you in those four different points from David's sermon, where are you? Do you call sin what it is? Do you let guilt do its job? Do you run rapidly to repentance? And are you rejoicing in forgiveness? Where are you in those four points? Let's ask the Lord to guide and direct us as we meditate on the cross. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the privilege of partaking of communion together so that we would be able to remember, hold in our hands elements that would point us to you to the glory, to the grace, to the forgiveness, and to the love that you poured out on us in Christ. As we prepare to partake of these elements, Father, I pray that as we sing, you would confirm these truths to our hearts. I pray that you would encourage us to let guilt do its job, that we'd run rapidly in repentance, and that we would be joyful. Oh God, give us joy today in our forgiveness in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.